one I think we should stand and sing.
listening to you sing that song because I got the sense that you actually believed that God is great. (laughs) And you actually caught the point of that song. There was a video a couple of years ago of a couple of country music stars singing that song. The video went viral. I can say viral because I'm young and hip. Uh, And the video was all over the internet, and the comment section was just full of people saying, didn't she sing great? And didn't he sing great? And don't their voices blend great together? And I was surprised how often the word great showed up in the comments. They sang great, and they sounded great, and the orchestra was great, and it was really great, and this song was really great. And I kept thinking, you're missing the point. The purpose of this song was not so that you would say the performer was great. The point of the song is God is great. And if you came away from that video thinking, wow, she was great, you missed the whole point of the song. So I'm with Steve. He said he wanted to keep singing that song. It was enjoyable to hear you all open your voices and sing That our God is great. You can turn to Mark chapter 7. We will get there eventually. The best place to start, I think, this morning is by reminding ourselves a little bit of the perspective again that Mark is coming from. And, of course, he's been influenced by Peter. What they know that we sometimes forget, I think, is they know the long-standing covenantal relationship that Israel as a nation has with God. And they know that they have been through a couple of different covenant situations. The Abrahamic covenant is the one I want to concentrate on for just a moment this morning. The Abrahamic covenant was a promise that God made to Abraham unilaterally didn't ask Abraham to do anything. God just simply said, I'm going to do all this for you. I'm going to give you all this. And he made physical promises to him, and he made spiritual promises to him. He promised him things like the land that would be Israel's in perpetuity. But he also made him very specific promises about what was going to happen through his descendants, through his progeny. And one of the things that he promised was, through your seed, through your descendants, through your genealogy, somehow, though God didn't use the word somehow, I just threw that in, but somehow through your progeny, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, when you see that, you have to think in terms of all the different tribal people, All the different families of the earth. The word family is being used there the same way that the Bible uses the word house. Sometimes when we see the word house, like house of Israel, we just think of 
brick and stone structures, the place where I live, my house that's my home. That's not the way the word's being used. It's being used the way that it's still used in England when you talk about the house of Tudor or the house of Windsor. You're talking about a genealogical group of people who share a common descent. That's the house of that progenitor, whoever that person is. So when God says that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, he means not just your direct descendants, but through one of your future descendants, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, from that point forward, throughout the Old Testament into the early New Testament, the Jews have this sense of, well, we are the chosen people of God. We are the select people of God. We are the ones that God has given the covenants and the promises and the land and the prophets and the oracles. We have the scripture. We're the elect people of God. And then once Jesus comes, once Jesus dies and resurrects, he says to his apostles, now go and preach this gospel to every living creature. The idea is not just Israel, not just Jews. Now go and tell this good news to all kinds of people. In other words, to all the families of the earth, because the blessing of Christ is now available to all the family groups of the earth, not just the Israelites. But... Paul argues in the book of Galatians that just because the law came along, the Sinai covenant, he argues that that covenant was added to Israel 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant. But his argument is that that further covenant did not annul the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is still good, still going on, still continuing. In the book of Acts, Acts 3, Three, I believe, right around verse 15, you're going to see Peter quote right from the Abrahamic covenant. And the particular thing he quotes is that through Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed because what the apostles are seeing in those early days is that this gospel of salvation through Christ is now reaching out into the Gentile world is now giving hope to people who never had a connection with God or a covenantal relationship with God. People who didn't have the Abrahamic covenant, didn't have the Sinai covenant. The Sinai covenant, by the way, was done away with in Christ. But Paul argues that the Abrahamic covenant is still good, still continuing. And the evidence, the proof of that, is that the Gentiles, all the families of the earth, are indeed getting the blessing of Christ. And through that blessing of Christ, who is a direct descendant of Abraham, that is evidence that God is still being true to his word, that through Christ, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So Christ then is called the Redeemer of Israel, but even in the Old Testament, he's called and a light to the Gentiles. So there is always that hint, always that clue that eventually Gentiles are going to be brought into the fold. Well, this next section of Mark that we're going to read is about a Syrophoenician woman. In other words, Gentile woman. And very much like the Roman centurion who had the 
servant who was sick and came to Jesus, and Jesus ended up saying, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Same thing's going to be with this woman, Gentile woman, going to come to the Jewish Messiah. And she's going to cry out to him, and his apostles, again, all Jewish, are going to think, well, don't, don't be coming to him. He's not yours. He's ours. He's our Messiah. He's our descendant of Abraham. He's our future king. He's not yours. You're Gentile. And even Jesus is going to put her down. Well, here's what he says to her. He says to her the same thing that the Jews always have said about the Gentiles. And it was an insult. They called the Gentiles dogs. In other words, they're just brute beasts. They're not even fully human. And so Jesus is going to say to the Syrophoenician woman who is begging him for help, he's going to say, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who I'm sent to. And it's not right to take the children's food. When he says children, he means the Israelites, the children of Israel. It's not right to take what rightly belongs to them and feed it to dogs. And any of us at that point would start a movement, need a safe space, somebody get me a juice cup. I feel really offended by this. That we would all just snowflake out. We would all just say, that Jewish guy insulted me and called me a dog. Well, what we're going to read is that she took the exact right position. And I'm going to argue this morning it's the position we all ought to take. Because the Bible says things about us that aren't comfortable. Things that if you say to people, you know, the Bible says that you're a wretched sinner. They'll argue with you. If you ask people, ask them, I do, ask them, are you a sinner? And what will they say? Yeah, I'm not that bad. No, I'm not a, well, I might do a few things wrong, but I'm not a sinner. But the Bible says you are. The Bible says not only are you a sinner, It says that you are a God-hating sinner who's in the dark and you're desperately depraved in your heart. Guilty. Guilty. That's what the Bible says about you. Now, how should you respond to that? Should you respond by saying, you've offended me, which is usually what people say when they say, well, I'm not really that bad. And I say, but the Bible says you are. And they say, yeah, but but I'm not. And they argue their credits. And they'll say, you know, I haven't done this and I haven't done, I didn't commit murder and I don't steal and I don't lie much and I don't, you know, so then I'm pretty good. I, I think I'm pretty good. My friends all like me. My mom thinks I have a nice face, you know, and <laughs> they'll list their credits for you because they want to believe that You're a sinner. What the Bible says, what Jesus says about you, just can't really be true because it offends us. It offends our conscience. It offends our ego. It offends our pride. It offends our self-worth. 
And let me help you out on that whole self-worth thing. Um, you have no worth outside of the value that Christ assigns to you. If the Son of God died for you and paid the highest price anybody ever paid for anything for you, well, that makes you pretty valuable. But in and of yourself, in your flesh, in your sinful, depraved heart, you have no self-worth. So, that being the case, we ought to be able to say to people, well, you know, the Bible says all this about you, and they should say, yes, that's true, but even the least little bit of mercy from God is good for me, will save me, is what I need. And that's what the Syrophoenician woman ends up saying. After Jesus calls her a Gentile dog, rather than be offended, rather than say, no, I'm pretty good, Jesus, rather than any of that, she says, that's true, that's right, that's what I am. But even dogs eat from the crumbs that fall off the master's table. Wow, what a good reply. And that ought to be our reply. You're a sinner. Yes, I am. But my master is so merciful and so kind that even the crumbs of mercy that fall from his table those are good for me. Those are sufficient for me. I can, I can fully eat off just the crumbs of who he is. Does this make sense? Yes. It's an astounding demonstration, not only of faith, but don't miss that it's a Gentile faith. So Mark, who's being tutored by Peter, keeps dropping these hints. That there's Gentiles coming to Jesus. And that Jesus isn't turning them away, but he's bringing them along in faith. He's bringing them along in the fact that he is everything he said he was, everything that he pronounces himself to be, he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer of Israel. He is the future King of Israel. He is the Righteous One, King of Kings. He's that one and he's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that says that through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want you to see as the background to what we're about to read. Now, Mark spends a good deal of time on the Syrophoenician woman. He thinks it's important because apparently Peter thinks it's important. Don't forget that Peter struggled with this idea. Peter struggled with the idea that Gentiles were going to be brought in. When he was at the house of Simon the Tanner and he was up on the roof, God had to three different times bring down unclean foods in front of him and say, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter argues with God, smart move. He argues with God and says, he does what all us sinners do. He lists his credit. No, Lord, because nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. I'm good. See that thing? I, no, God, don't. It? And so finally God says to him, don't call unclean what I call clean. And at that moment, people from the household of Gentiles from Cornelius are at the door looking for Peter. 
And the lesson is, go with those Gentiles. They're not unclean. Don't call unclean what I call clean. Now, you would think that Peter would have learned the lesson then. But then we read in the book of Galatians that when he was uh, there with Paul, that yet again, he was eating with Gentiles. But when some came from James and Jerusalem, he dissembled from the Gentiles and acted like he wasn't eating with them. And Peter was withstood to his face by Paul because Paul says he was to be blamed because he was acting again like there was a distinction, a difference within the house of Christ between Jew and Gentile. And he was keeping those old Jewish traditions of Gentiles being unclean. So here is Jesus. He's going to respond to a Gentile woman because he's presenting all the families of the earth being blessed, just like the promise of Abraham said. And even though his apostles don't get it, don't understand it, it's really important that Mark, who writes the shortest gospel, spends more ink on this story than Matthew does, which is a much longer gospel. But he just kind of mentions it in passing. Mark concentrates on it. I think that's the influence of Peter, who's concentrating on it, because Peter is getting that lesson that the Gentiles are coming in. So he wants to present that. All right, so that is all introduction and does not count against my time. We are in Mark verse 24 of chapter 7. You know what? Stay there. Keep your finger there. And turn to the book of Matthew for just a moment. Turn to Matthew 15. And we'll read the Matthew account first, then we'll go to Mark. And you'll see that Mark's account is longer, and he fills in more detail. So we're in Matthew 15, starting at verse 21. Which starts, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, the areas of Tyre and Sidon, north of the Canaan area, along the seashore. But what's important about Tyre and Sidon? It's Gentile areas. Yeah, he's moving into Gentile predominant areas. Do you think Jesus knew when he went to a predominantly Gentile area that there might be Gentiles coming to him? He's doing this on purpose. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, a woman whose descent was from Canaan, a woman who's not a Jew, came out from that region, from Tyre and Sidon, where all the Gentiles were, and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. And then she identifies who he is, son of David. That's really important Jewish nomenclature. Because in order for him to be the king of Israel, he has to be a descendant of David. And in order for him to satisfy and fulfill the Davidic covenant... He has to be a descendant of David. So when he goes into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, the Jews call him son of David because that's really important to their history and to their promises and to their covenants. So they identify him as the son of David. But here a Gentile is doing it. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out saying, have mercy on me, 
O Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. Doesn't that seem harsh? He's teaching even by his silence. So she says, come to me, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And he says, nothing. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, send her away, for she's shouting out after us. Why would they want to send her away? They're used to Jesus having massive crowds. When he said, who touched me? They said, look at the size of the crowd. Everybody's touching you. Everybody wants to get to you. When he was in the house, he didn't have time to eat. Here his disciples, because there was such a mass of people around him all the time. You would think the disciples would be used to the fact that there's always people around. So here's one particular woman, and she's crying out to him, and they say, send her away. Why would they say that? She's a Gentile. She's Canaanite. She's a dog, and you're not responding to her. She's calling out and you're not speaking to her. Make her go away. He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, interesting that Matthew would include that because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. So he wants to point that out. Mark, writing to a largely Gentile audience, doesn't include that. Kind of interesting. It is a quote from Jesus, but why wouldn't he include that? Well, probably because he wants his Gentile audience to see Jesus as their Savior. So he's not going to write the part where Jesus says, I'm only sent to Israel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there's that language of house again, demonstrating that he's talking about not only the Jews of the southern kingdom, but the Israelites of the northern kingdom, who have been known historically as the house of Israel. So I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. That is the moment when she should have been deeply offended. That's the moment when she should have stood up and said, oh, fine, if that's the way you're going to be, fine. Who needs you? Okay, so you're the Jewish Messiah, but you can't help me? My daughter has a demon, and you don't care? You hard-hearted Jew, you? you dog? You're calling me a dog? My daughter's in pain. And I'm a dog? That would have been, well, let's be honest, that would have been any of us. Especially in this hyper-offended society we live in these days, where you can say anything and people get offended. By the way, may I add, just parenthetically, this has nothing to do with the Bible, but let me help you youngsters out just a moment. Uh, There is nothing, no promise, no guarantee that just because you're born, there's a guarantee that you're never going to be offended. (laughs) Offended is part of life because, get this right, there's other people, and those other people might think other things than you think, and just because they think differently than you 
does not make them wrong. It makes them different. Okay, I just wanted to point that out. Getting all snowflakey again. <laughs> Getting all snowflakey. Don't, you're, you're not guaranteed that you're not going to be offended in this lifetime. And now you're offended. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, I, I will try not to go on. But you have no guarantee you're not going to be offended. By the way, I think, now I am going on. I think being offended is good for you because it builds character. It builds the ability to be offended, stand up, and move on through life. So when we're creating a society where we're trying to make sure nobody's ever offended, what kind of society are we creating? Weak. Weak. Characterless. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now. Okay, this is my soapbox right here. There, I'm off it. See that? Okay. She came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord. She agreed. Yeah, I'm a dog. I'm like a family pet under a table, just hoping the kids drop something so I can have something to eat. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She saw him as master. She saw him as Lord and called him that. She saw him as the one who had the authority over demons that if he delivered her daughter, the daughter would be delivered. Where'd she get that kind of faith? Where'd she get that kind of confidence? Why did she even go chase Jesus in the first place? Because she heard. She heard about Jesus. She knew the stories about Jesus. She knew what Jesus was going around doing. It got to her, and the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And she heard it. The woman apparently had heard of Jesus, which would be why she even sought him out when she found out he was in the area, but she also had this faith in Jesus, not just a faith where she sat at home and said, Jesus probably could heal my daughter. But she put it into the action of actually going to Jesus and asking him. And her faith was so confident in Jesus' ability that even when he insulted her and called her a dog, she answered back, everything you said about me is true. Exactly right. But I still believe you can heal my daughter. And I still need you. I still need your help. Call me what you will. Say that you've only come for the house of Israel and I'm a dog you didn't come for. Nevertheless, you're the only help I see. And that's the right attitude. When the Bible says, when Christianity says, you're a sinner. The right response is not to defend yourself. The right response is, that's true, that's right, that's correct, but I don't see any other hope but you. I don't see any other way to stand before God fully justified and redeemed but you. And if you want to say these things about me and call me a sinner, I am. 
And if you want to say that I'm depraved in my heart, I am. We're going to see in a little while a father who's going to say to Jesus, I do believe. Jesus is going to say to him, if if you believe, all things are possible. And he's going to say, I do believe you help my unbelief. He even comes to Jesus as the source of faith and says, "I, I do believe you, but I'm not able to believe that much. And even the belief that I need has to come from you. He's the source. So this woman recognized, yes, I'm a dog. Yes, you're the Jewish Messiah. I don't know where else to go. I have no other help. You can do it. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, now, don't miss this, because when he says this out loud, everybody's listening. Everybody's hearing this. Oh, woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. What is Jesus doing? A couple of things. The disciples have been saying, get rid of her. Get rid of her. She's crying out to you. Yeah, she's crying out to me because I'm her only hope. And she's desperate. Of course she's crying out to me. But look at her faith. Even when it looked like I wasn't going to help her, she didn't turn away from the fact that I'm the only help. Lesson there for all of us again. Because sometimes you're going to hear yourself say, where are you, Lord? I'm going through hard times now. I'm having difficulty now. Where are you? But you have to just keep pressing. Keep pushing your way toward him. Keep believing him. Keep trusting him. Because in the end, what else is there? Where else are you going to go? Who else has that kind of authority and that kind of power? So her demonstration of pressing closer to him Even when he insulted her that would have driven away most people, she pressed closer nevertheless, and he ends up saying to everybody, you know that woman that you wanted nothing to do with? Look how great that faith is. So he's teaching. He's showing a lesson here. Okay, now turn to Mark. Now we can look at Mark's account of it. Mark's account is longer than Matthew's account. Starting in chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he arose, and he went to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it, and yet he could not escape notice. Now, we've seen this several times in Mark's account, how often Jesus tried to just kind of get away from everybody for a little bit. And then as soon as everybody knows where he is, there's masses of people again. Why? Not because the masses of people wanted to worship him, but because they believed he could do something for them. So they were constantly, constantly following him wherever he went. He goes into a house. He didn't want anybody to know it, but he couldn't escape notice. But after hearing of him, there Mark takes the time to tell us what Matthew doesn't, that this woman had heard about him. That's why I included That the faith comes through hearing, hearing by the word of God. She heard the story of Jesus. After hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter 
had an unclean spirit, immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. Mark points it out. Matthew just kind of leaves it there and knows that his Jewish audience is going to know that the region of Tyre and Sidon, that's a predominantly Gentile area. So it's not surprising that a Gentile would come. But Mark, writing to a Gentile audience, takes the time to point out, now she's a Gentile, just like you guys. And watch how Jesus responds to her request. So the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, Mark's version of it doesn't include, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Mark just includes the phrase, let the children be satisfied first. That's his way of saying, well, Jesus is really sent to Israel, really sent to the Jews. They're the children, so they're going to be satisfied first. But it's not good. They both quote this. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answered and said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. He said to her, because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. Did she mention to Jesus where she lived? (laughs) How does he know who's her daughter and where the daughter is? Notice that right from where he was, he was able to say, go back home. Demon's out of your daughter. He knew. He understood it all. He knew where the girl was. He knew who the demon was. He was the one who exercised the demon out of her and did it from a distance. That's the kind of authority he had. The kind of authority that he did not give up during his earthly sojourn. He just kept demonstrating that kind of authority over the demons of hell and the angels of heaven that came to minister to him. He's the one who we read, he's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's in charge of it all. So he says to the woman, go home and your daughter's fine now. Notice she doesn't say, wait, what? I thought you were going to come with me. She believed him, just his word. What did she believe? She believed the word of God. The very word. Where's faith come from? Hearing and hearing by the word. The very word of Jesus. Your daughter's okay? Good enough for her because the next verse says, and going back to her home, which means she got up and went, oh, okay. So she's fine? Good. And she went back home and she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having departed. That's authority. That's sovereignty. That's not a Jesus you mess around with. I know I've used the phrase snowflake. Well, actually, Tom's used it this morning. And I'm not getting on my soapbox. It's right here. I'm going to stay off it. But I think as this society continues to weaken what real manhood is in our concept of religion and specifically Christianity, we have made Jesus less of the powerful, authoritative man he was 
and we've kind of made him more snowflakey so that Jesus becomes uh, meek and mild Jesus who walked around with a lamb on his shoulders all the time and he has hair like a Brett girl and he's got you know, he's just really kind all the time a PC Jesus, that's the one I keep hearing preached. The Jesus you find in the Bible has absolute authority. He says that the Father gave him authority in heaven and earth. Absolute. It's up to him to judge the quick and the dead. Absolute. He's the one who has all the power and he knows it. And he did things that no man in this room would be willing to do. When did any of you ever fast for 40 days? Want to raise a hand? That's not a weak guy. That's the Son of God demonstrating his power and demonstrating that he has absolute authority over heaven, hell, and earth. Verse 31 says, and again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. What does that tell you? He went to the region of Tyre. Why? For one woman's daughter. Was she Jewish? No, a Gentile woman. It's just like he said, I have to go through Samaria. Why? The Jews never go through Samaria. But there was one woman at one well. And he had to go see her. He had to go deal with her. And having done that, he moved on. He went to the region of Tyre. Do you understand the distance I'm talking about here? Well, the distance isn't just from Jerusalem or even from Canaan to Tyre. The distance is he came from heaven all the way to planet Earth and then all the way to Tyre for one woman and a Gentile at that. And having accomplished that, none of the apostles list anything else that he did while he was in Tyre. He came there because of one woman who belonged to him since before the foundation of the world who needed him. I would apply that by saying, did you come to Jesus or did he come to you? Yeah, he came to you and no matter where you were, he found you. Because he knows you, because he knows where you are, just like he knows where the daughter was. He's in control. He's the authority. He has all the power. He came to you to accomplish what he was going to do in you, and then moves on to the next person that he's saving and drawing and bringing to himself until he assembles his church, which is why the Bible would say that he is making his ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's doing it one person at a time, you and you and you, and bringing you out, not because you were seeking him, but because he came seeking you, because he knew you before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. So let me ask, what did you do? Not a thing. What did you do? You got got. You got grace. You got kindness from God who was under no obligation to save you. But he did. All right, so Mark goes on. And again, he went from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf 
and spoke with difficulty, and he entreated him to lay his hands on him. And he took that man aside from the multitude by himself, and he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. Now, don't miss that Mark said that. He looks up to heaven with a deep sigh because you're going to see this a couple of times coming up where Mark is going to mention that Jesus sighs before he says things like he's going to say, do you still not understand? And he sighs because he's on the planet. He knows who he is. He's the very son of God. He came from heaven. He's there demonstrating who he is in word, in deed. And he's doing that. And yet people just don't get it. And so he sighs when he says to him, Ephatha, which is be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders, all of them there. He gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Because Mark has said several times now, Jesus said, don't tell people. And they always go out and tell. Because, of course, because we're humans. Because if you couldn't walk and somebody came up and said, take up your bed and walk, and you did it, you're telling people. Because people are going to look at you and go, wait, aren't you lame? Yeah, yeah, I used to be. I used to be lame. Can you imagine the blind guy walking into the temple and he can see? Of course, people are going, wait, aren't you blind? Or have you been faking for 30 years? Yeah, you'd want to tell people. Yeah, this man, Jesus, healed me, opened my eyes, caused me to walk. So no matter how much he gives them orders not to tell anybody, why would he do that, by the way? Why would he continue to say, don't talk about it, don't tell people, don't spread it? Because he knows it's not his time yet. And there's going to be a point where the Jews are going to become so frustrated with his drawing people to himself while he's saying things like, oh yeah, those leaders you have in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, whitewashed sepulchers. In fact, they compass land and sea to make one proselyte, and when they've made him, they make him twice the child of hell that they are. So he's calling them whitewashed sepulchers, he's calling them cleaned up graves, and he's calling them children of Satan, and he's gathering a following. Well, they're going to, at some point, just get so angry that they're going to kill him for it. And it's not time yet. So he keeps saying, don't tell, but they do. Verse 37 says, and they were utterly astonished. That's that word again that's awestruck. Saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. I think that phrase, he does all things well, is an admission that he's yet to try anything that he didn't accomplish. When he drove out demons, the demons left. When he healed blind guys, blind people saw. When he healed lame people, they got up and walked. And they didn't just walk 
long enough to get to the other side of the platform so that the popular healing minister would look good, and then they got home and found out they were still sick. Didn't happen like that. When Jesus healed people, they stayed healed. And so people began to say, no matter what he does, healing deaf ears and blind eyes and driving out demons and everything he does works. Everything he does succeeds. Which, by the way, let's apply that one quickly. Everything he does works. Everything he does succeeds. Which means if he's out to get you, he's going to get you. Not only because he has all the the power and authority, and you have a grand total of none, but also because everything he does, he does really well. And if he has known you since before the foundation of the world, and your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life, he knows you belong to him, and he's going to get you, and he's going to convert you, and he's going to redeem you, and he's going to draw you to himself. And despite yourself, you're going to be a Christian because he does all things really, really well. Amen. All right, so real quick now. We're going to go just, just slightly a little bit long this morning, but that's because my introduction, again, didn't count against my time, right? Everybody good with the rule? Okay, good. Because now Jesus is going to feed 4,000. He's already fed 5,000. And why is he doing it? Because we read out of Mark after he had fed the 5,000 that they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand it because their hearts were hardened. So he's going to do it again as an object lesson, and then he's going to go to them and say, don't you get it yet? And he's going to sigh when he does it. So chapter 8 verse 1 says, in those days again, when there was a great multitude and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitudes because they have remained with me now for three days. And they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their home, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a distance. And his disciples answered him by saying, again, fleshly answer, how do we do that? And he's like, didn't we just do that? (laughs) Didn't I just feed thousands of people? On a couple of fish and a couple loaves? Why are you asking how we're going to pull this off? And his disciples answered him and said, Where will anyone be able to find enough to satisfy these men with bread here in this desolate place? They learned nothing. Now can you see why Mark wrote their hearts were hardened? That's why after he fed the 5,000 previously, Mark took the time to say, They didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. And Jesus is actually going to ask them in verse 17, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see and understand? Do you not yet get it? Do you not yet see and understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Mark previously told us, yes, (laughs) yes, they do. And that answer 
Okay, here's these people. Here's these 4,000 people. We need to feed them. I have compassion on them. We're out here in a desolate place, and they've got a long journey home, and so we need to show kindness to them. We need to feed them. And when his disciples say, how? We're in a desolate place. How are we going to feed all these people? He's getting really frustrated. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the multitude to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and not just ate, they ate till they were full. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over from the broken pieces. Jesus didn't just make enough. He made too much. (laughs) They picked up the scraps in large baskets. And about 4,000 were there. And then he sent them away, sent them back home after he fed them. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples, and he came to the district of Dalmanutha, and the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply, you see that? Why does Mark keep saying that? Jesus is at the point where he's just getting tired of people doubting. It's like, I've shown you everything. I've demonstrated my authority. I've shown you all the miracles. I've given you the very word of God. And now what do you want from me? A sign? Have you not seen the blind that see, the deaf that hear, the lame that walk? Have you not seen the demons driven out? Have you not seen those things? That Then you would come and say, hey, um, show us something and then we'll believe. You can see why he's fed up. And he sighs. Deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Now the word generation there, we've talked about it before, doesn't mean the people group that were alive at that very moment. This is the word genea. It's the root word from which we get genealogy. He's speaking of the Israelites as a genetic group. That's where we get the word genetic too. He's saying, why is it that you people, I'm sent to you people, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, why is it that though I'm sent to you, you still don't understand anything? Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Now Matthew, when recounting that same conversation, takes the time to say the only sign that's going to be given to you is the sign of Jonah. And like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days, three nights. Matthew includes all that. Mark doesn't. Mark is getting somewhere. He wants to make the point he's about to make. And once we get to this point, we'll be done this morning. So he says, truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to bring bread. How did they forget to bring bread? How many baskets of bread did they just pick up? (laughs) How did they manage to forget the baskets of bread? 
and they had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Those were the leaders. That's the king. And those are the leaders in the temple at Jerusalem. And he's saying to them, be careful of the leaven of those people. Now, real quickly, you should know that in the Old Testament and Jewish history for 1400 years, they've been keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Every year at the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, they have to take all the leaven that's in their house and in their camp and they have to get it out. They have to take all the leaven out because leaven in that example is a type of sin, driving sin out of the camp. When he says here to them, beware of the leaven, they know what he's saying because they know that they have to get the leaven out. And so when he says to them, beware of the leaven, that's the unclean, the sin. Look out for what's being taught to you by the Pharisees and by the king, by Herod. And they were so moved by the brilliance of that statement that they went straight to their flesh and began discussing how they didn't bring any bread with them. They don't get it. They don't get it at all. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. They think he's talking about bread. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. They think he means, why didn't you bring more bread? And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? By the way, if you would, real quickly, Tom, look up Jeremiah 5.21. Somebody else, Micah, look up Ezekiel 12.2. Both of those are predictions by Jeremiah and Isaiah that these people were not going to be able to see with their eyes or were going to be able to hear with their ears. And the very fact that Jesus brings it up is like, see, you're the very people that were prophesied. Are you the ones that don't see, that don't hear? That's why he kept walking around saying, if you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see. He kept saying that stuff because the prophecies existed, that there were going to be a people group who, though he was in their midst, and though he was doing the miracles, and though he was demonstrating their authority, they just weren't going to be able to get it. What does that prove? That proves that human beings by themselves, of their own power, by their own will, cannot recognize Christ. It doesn't matter how much it showed to you. It doesn't matter how many people pound on you with the Bible. It doesn't matter how many times people go, you should come to Jesus because you'll get a big car and a big house. You You won't come to Christ till Christ first comes to you. He was with his disciples. He was showing everything he needed to show. And now he's asking them, even you don't get it? How is it that even you don't get it? Tom, read Jeremiah, what is it, 12.2? Is that what I said? Uh, 5.21. 5.21, sure. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Micah, read Ezekiel 12.2. Son, man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house. You have eyes to see, but do not see, ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. 
Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000 people? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. 12 baskets full we picked up afterwards. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, don't you understand? In other words, this isn't about bread. This can't be about bread. Mark told us they had one loaf. He could feed the rest of the world with one loaf. And he says, you're with me. You're with me. Me, the authority, the power. I'm in charge of everything. Heaven, hell, and earth is under my jurisdiction. And you think that just because we don't have bread in the boat, that's a problem? Do you still not understand why did I feed the 5,000? Why did I feed the 4,000? And how much extra bread was there afterwards? Do you still not understand? I'm in charge. I'm the power. I'm the authority. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. So we'll pick up right there next week. Because they're going to bring a blind man to him. And he's again going to demonstrate. Because Jesus is demonstrating, demonstrating, demonstrating who he is. Because as I've been telling you all the way along, the book of Mark makes a beeline to the cross. But before Mark gets you there, he has to explain to you who it is that's hanging on that cross. So he keeps showing you not only the physical implications of who Jesus is that he is doing all these miracles, but even the spiritual implications, that he has the kind of authority to drive out demons from a distance. You don't even have to tell him where they are, and he'll drive them out. That's the kind of universal authority he has. He has the kind of power, the kind of authority, where the things of this world that we are so concerned with, like, what will I eat? He said, your Father in heaven knows you have need of these things. It's his good pleasure to give it to you. But he also said things like, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. So he kept prioritizing himself. And even though he prioritized himself and demonstrated who he was, even his closest disciples couldn't get it. What does that prove? Human beings can't get it. No amount of external evidence is going to convince you. He himself has to convince you. And he has to do it by putting his Holy Spirit in you that quickens you, that brings you to spiritual life, and then you remember the things that Jesus says and talks about. And and you praise and worship and love him, not because of you, but because you have his Spirit in you. And that's the only way people get saved, but it's also the only way that people know the least little thing about God and Christ. The least little thing. Because, man, if they could see stuff like that and still cause Jesus to heavily sigh over and over and finally ask them, do you have no understanding? Do you not get it? Man, there's no hope then for any of us. 
So I'm very grateful that, thank God, he did come to us yes. where we were, yes. that he found us, that he sought us, that he redeemed us. And once we're convinced of that, then we're just like the Syrophoenician woman. We just keep going back to him and saying, where else can I go? You're it. You've got everything. You're the only answer to my life's problems. And he's a good answer to your problems because he does all things well. <laughs> all right. Any questions about that? Yes, ma'am. So if Jesus gave the Syrophoenician woman faith, Right, yeah, I, I, I would assume so, though the Bible doesn't tell us. But yes, I would assume that there's no way that Jesus makes such a big deal of her in his word for the next 2,000 years and he puts her in hell. I, I don't imagine that that can be true. I would reckon that that was all predestined by God of what she would say and what he would say yeah. and what was all done to teach a lesson. I agree. Tongues, tribes, yeah. and nations were included by this act. God gave her the words to say. She didn't come up with. I believe she didn't come up with that on her own. As you said, we we people become so easily offended. But God gave her the words to say these things yeah. in order to teach the lesson. I think if that weren't true, then Jesus, who only had three and a half years to get things done, would have been going to that region for nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, sir. In the Matthew version, it seems to me that Jesus says two things which are not just troubling. One of them seems to be absolutely anti-scriptural, even though Jesus said it. And the second one... <laughs> and it's in the scripture? <laughs> yeah. And the second one is... Wait, don't, don't wait there. The tell us, thing. tell us, uh, well, don't leave yes, us in suspense. Jesus says... I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah. Isn't it clear that that's not true? No. At the point of his ministry, I would say that was his primary motive. His primary objective was the lost sheep of the house of Israel because he came to be the redeemer of Israel. And then after he died, buried, <laughs> resurrected, then he said, now go tell this gospel I would have no trouble if you said, George, it's a translation. If you knew any Greek, this word only yeah. is just an extrapolation that the translator probably didn't understand. I could accept that. Except that's, it says, except that's not what it says. It does yeah. say only. Yeah. I mean, in the, now, well, here, if Steve I, wants to say, well, it doesn't say that in the Greek, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Well, he didn't say that. Okay. Yeah. Jesus, at one point, sends his apostles out two by two. And he says to them, don't go to the way of the Gentiles. Don't go into the way of the Samaritans. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel preaching the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very exclusive. So chronologically, if the only could fit. Yes, absolutely. Chronologically, during his ministry, prior to the cross, okay. that was his objective. All right. I'm good with that. See, the cross is the distinction where the new covenant goes into effect and where he says, now go tell all nations. And then the ongoing Abrahamic covenant and the promise of all families being blessed is fulfilled. But his three and a half years are about Israel.
And the second one, you don't really have to give a separate answer because it's pretty much the same thing, I guess. Oh. Or he said, I mean, it's a it's a metaphor. Uh, children's bread means the Israelites, yeah. and, the, and the dogs means the Gentiles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's a pretty clear metaphor, but yeah. spoken like a lawyer. <laughs> well, I think it has to very heavily do with time because as Jesus is walking, it is still the old covenant. The, it's the still the old covenant. covenant. Absolutely. He has to die, and it says that Gentiles are grafted into the new covenant. Right. So they can't, he's not there to save them at that point because there is no new covenant yet. Then when he dies, we have the, the great blessing of being part of that. But before that, we have no part of that. It's oh, not ours. Right. The Gentiles also don't have a redeemer. Right. Only the Israelites were ever promised someone that would come to redeem them. Mm -hmm. So he was only sent. To people who had yeah, that was reading. that was the purpose and the point. Yeah, yes, sir. To be even more difficult with that passage in Matthew, it is literally, "I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house." Yeah, it's exclusive. When you were talking about this whole this whole uh, interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. I was looking at what it said there. She gets home, and her daughter's lying in bed, and the demon has departed, and it's the perfect tense, as in the demon has departed and is remaining And stays gone. gone. Yeah. And I thought to myself, what was the conversation like with her daughter? Mm -hmm. And in years to come, what was it like? You know, I, I went to Jesus. Yeah. And then sometime after that, we have Pentecost, and we have the dispersion of the Christians, and there had to have been Christians going to that area who gave her greater knowledge because she didn't know about the cross at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was, man, sometimes I just think, all right, there's so much more to the story <laughs> that we're not told. It's going to be great. It's overwhelming. Talking to these people. Yeah. I do believe he came only to the <coughs> And that moment of interaction with her was a mercy. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. And in fact, I think the very fact that he said it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs, and then she said, yes, dog, under the table, crumbs and stuff, the very fact that he responded was nothing but mercy. Right. Because he's already demonstrated, I'm not obligated to you. And that might also be part of that exception. Yeah. I'm but under no obligation to you. But I'm going to do it. And then he commends her for her great faith, and what a, yes. which we see him do several times, which is a big slap in the faith to, to the Jews, to the Jews who, who do not, have who faith. don't have any faith. Right. right. I think that's purposeful in Mark's account, and why I wanted to read all the way up to Jesus berating the disciples for not having any understanding is that you keep seeing these Gentiles having faith, and the Jews just don't get it. Anything else? We're good. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.